Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is taken from Isaiah 29, verses 13 through 16, and from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. And if you'd like to follow along, it's on page 6 of the bulletin. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they've been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us, who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Last time reading with us, right, Will? That's probably it, yeah. All right, let's pray. Let's pray together before we look to God's word. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you in advance for how we know you will speak to us in big ways and quiet whispers. Uh, we pray that you would uh, give us attentiveness of heart. We're so easily distracted. We confess it. I confess it. But we are desperate for words of truth and words of grace. And so please come and send your Holy Spirit. Help us to hear. Help us to listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll admit, an earlier version, an earlier draft of this sermon actually began with a few words about tomorrow's uh, solar eclipse. Um, after all, after all, this week, next week, it is every preacher's ministerial and moral obligation to use cheesy solar eclipse analogies in their sermons, isn't it? Have to bring it up, right? And so I'm preparing in this fashion, but suddenly my computer actually crashed. And when I reopened the file, I discovered that everything was intact, safe properly, except, except for my eclipse introduction. It was gone, uh, just gone. And so I took that as a sign, as divine editing, maybe divine judgment, I don't know, right? And so I decided that I'd accept that and go in a completely different direction as you're now witnessing. So in the end, I'm fine with that if that's what Jesus wanted. After all, my job as a preacher is to reflect the sun, not to eclipse him. So, so, <laughs> don't leave. So, instead of using any, any bad eclipse metaphors, 
which I will not do, I want to start by pointing out to you that losing a piece of my sermon notes wasn't obviously according to my plan. It wasn't according to what I had anticipated, expected, maybe even in my heart demanded things would work out. Apparently, God had a different plan, a better plan, something according to his character, his insight as to what you might need, as to what I might need, that God had a better plan. And that, my friends, may be a small lesson, obviously a very small lesson, in what the Bible calls the wisdom of God. That's God's take on what's best for you and for me. The wisdom of God. And that's the focus of today's sermon as we continue in our series called Who is God? This series on the different attributes of God, the characteristics of the God of the Bible. And so we're going to look at three little components, pieces of this theme this morning. First of all, the meaning of the wisdom of God. The meaning of the wisdom of God. Secondly, the problem with the wisdom of God. The problem with the wisdom of God. And thirdly, the praise of the wisdom of God. And so let's together put on our spiritual solar eclipse lenses and see what you find. I'm just kidding. All right. Here we go. The meaning of the wisdom of God. The Bible tells us, you know, that God is wise. God is wise. Isaiah 33 describes God as a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. Job 9 verse 4 says his wisdom is profound. His power is vast. And we see it here in today's passages as well. The second of the two that we're looking at today, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36 is Another example, it's actually a doxology, this spontaneous word of praise in this great magisterial letter that the Apostle Paul had written to the church in Rome. Specifically, this one is a praise for God's wisdom. See in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, when the Bible tells us that God is wise, we might think that that just means that God is smart, that he knows lots of things, facts about the world, even things that we don't know. The Bible does tell us that God is smart. It tells us that he is omniscient. He knows all things. We studied that aspect of God's nature several weeks ago earlier this summer. But you'll notice in verse 33 how Paul here talks about the wisdom of God on the one hand and the knowledge of God on the other hand. They're paired together because they are related to each other, but they're also different. You see, God's wisdom is more than his knowledge. It means not only that God knows all things, God's wisdom means that God also knows how all things fit together best. How circumstances work together 
best, how life works best, and that he is a God who is able and willing to bring together all these things for our good according to his plans and his purposes. Here's how one theology textbook describes the wisdom of God. It says, God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. Behold the wisdom of God. And so, for example, we see the wisdom of God in creation, in the natural world. For instance, in Proverbs 3, verse 19, we hear words like these, by, by wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. God made all things in this world, whether immediately or immediately. He made all things harmonious, intricately well designed so that things work all things in nature. I was thinking about this the other day when we were suffering another one of those incredible downpours of rain. Have you ever thought about rain? It's the most amazing thing that somehow this whole earth can be watered again and again with little raindrops that are just the right size, right? Not so small that they don't actually do its work of watering the earth and causing vegetation to grow and giving life to living things. Just big enough to do its work and yet small enough that it doesn't normally damage the flowers and the plants and people. You can imagine room-sized raindrops falling from the sky, how destructive that would be. Raindrops perfectly designed to do its work according to God's design, according to God's wisdom. Uh, you know, have you ever looked at rain or some other part of the created world and, and sort of paused to ponder, how, how did you do that, God? How, how did you figure that out to make it work just like that? How did you design and plan it just perfectly like that? We see the wisdom of God in creation. We also see the wisdom of God in redemption. In his perfect plan of salvation, which is just amazing because no one else could have possibly imagined it as it turned out. That somehow the God of the universe, who is a God of justice, the God who can't just look away from wrongs that are done against other people, made in his image, and therefore also done unto him. God can't simply sweep under the rug all of our sin and evil. He's a just God. And yet at the same time, he found a way to be the justifier, the one who forgives the sins of sinners. That somehow on the cross, in the person of his son, fully God and fully man, that in that event of his death and resurrection, that God would be able to maintain both his justice and his mercy at the same time for his glory and for your eternal good. Who could have figured that out but God, a God of eternal wisdom? 
A God who describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 24, Jesus himself, Christ, as the power of God and the wisdom of God. That Jesus embodies that very wisdom of God. This Jesus who came not as an impressive person, not as someone that held worldly stature or positions of influence, not someone that was even attractive to us, that we might be attracted to him for his outward appearances, but rather someone that was forgettable, someone that was lowly, humble, indeed poor. Someone who was born into this world not on a golden throne, but in a manger, in a faraway distant small town, in a place that no one knew about and no one expected. And so the Apostle Paul there in 1 Corinthians 1 writes that for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, it was God's wisdom to bring about a Savior who you could only grasp by seeing through the foolishness of God's plan, of seeing the great wisdom of God beyond what human eyes can see, where you would have to humble yourself to see him, to receive him, to repent and to believe. The wisdom of God in salvation, and even in the way that he brings people to himself from every stripe and background. The way in which Ephesians 3 points us to the mystery of the way that God brings together a diverse people economically and culturally and racially different, who might even have hostile backgrounds against each other, but who are united into one body of Christ according to God's strange purposes. And Ephesians 3 says this, why did God do it this way? That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. In other words, that God intends that people should look at his redeemed people, that people should look at his church, that people should look at you. People from every imaginable background. And marvel at the wisdom of God. How did God bring together different people like that? We see the wisdom of God in creation, in his redemption, but we also see the wisdom of God in our own lives? Have you seen maybe even the surprising outworkings of God's plans, maybe which contradicted your own plans or expectations? I see it in my life, right in the way in which I was in college disappointed for not getting some of the first choice internships that I was seeking after, and yet landed a still very good one which brought me to the city of Washington, D.C. A, a summer program that had me here, which first opened wide my heart, in fact, broke my heart for this city in a way where I left that summer before my senior year, saying to myself, I would love one day to be a part of that city and to love those neighbors there. Or the mystery of the wisdom of God at work, even in the way that I landed here when I finally did land here, uh, searching across the city for a place to live. And when you come, you have no idea where you're looking. 
one part of this city from another. But through the providence of God and just through closed doors and other apartments that I had intended to live in and didn't work out, finally signing a lease just a few blocks down the road from here where I've been and lived for the last 13 years, without which, without the movement of God and the wisdom of God, I'm almost certain there would not be this church community and I would not be serving and ministering right here in this particular part of the city, the wisdom of God. And you can see it in other parts of your life, the way in which I see God's wisdom working in the way that he brought Paula and me together, the way in which many of our friendships have worked out, the way in which God has directed our steps according to his plan so that we might be able to say together with Romans 8, God works together all things for our good. Do you see the evidences of the wisdom of God working in your life? Even in the ways that he uses circumstances to humble us, to teach us, to challenge us, to make us more and more conformed into the image of his son. Do you see evidence of this, again, not only in God's word, but also in actual life? Evidence that God knows how things fit together best and he brings them together for our good. We don't always see or know exactly what he's doing, of course, but sometimes he gives us a glimpse. So I ask you, have you witnessed the wisdom of God? Maybe what's one area of your life where you see evidence of his wisdom at work? Maybe even when that lesson and that lens has been hard to accept. Which brings us to the next point. The problem with the wisdom of God. And simply put, it's this. That God's wisdom is higher than ours and God's ways beyond our ways. And it's not always easy to accept what he puts before us. His plans and purposes is it. You know, in this passage in Romans 11, one of the things that's most on Paul's mind about God's wisdom is just how above us and beyond us it actually is. He writes how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. In other words, I cannot understand them always. How God makes decisions and where he decides to go often is unfathomable. And verses 34 and 35 emphasize just how God is not dependent upon any of us in the way in which he works out his wisdom. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. God is the source of all things. God is the sustainer of all things. God is the reason for all things which is part of his being far beyond our human understanding. And so his wisdom often confounds us, confuses us, even sometimes wounds us. And it's hard. Maybe some of you know this all too well. We have this tendency to resist 
sometimes even rail against the wisdom of God. Which brings us to this first passage, Isaiah 29. It's a powerful passage from the prophet Isaiah, where God is rebuking his people for their rebellion against him, specifically their rebellion against God's wisdom. You see in verse 13, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. In other words, you're full of superficiality and hypocrisy, dead religiosity. You you, you say the right things religiously. You sing the right religious songs. You do the right religious rituals. But in your heart of hearts, you are still leaning on your own wisdom on your own sense of the right way forward, on your own best analysis of your circumstances, and you reject my wisdom. You see, here's what's going on behind the scenes of this passage. God's people, this nation, is in trouble. Assyria, a great power, powerful nation in the ancient world, has become to them a major military threat. And understandably, God's people are absolutely terrified. But God tells them, you're going to be okay. I will protect you. I will be with you. Trust in me. And the people respond in effect, no, you're not doing enough. You're not going to come through. We're scared, so we're going to take matters into our own hands. And so they secretly devise a political plan. They form an alliance with Egypt, who has a history of oppressing Israel, but that's okay. We're desperate. We need their help any way we can get it. And so it says in verse 14, Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, Who will see us? Who will know And isn't this just like us? Uh, The way in which sometimes the wisdom of God, God's purposes for us make us nervous. They even make us cringe. We begin to question the character of God. We begin to wonder if he knows what he's doing, if his hands have come off the steering wheel. Certainly this happens when we're in times of pain or confusion. Times when we're thrown into dizzying seasons of doubt where we begin then to tell God what to do rather than seeking to discern what he intends to do, where we start to lay out our own goals and reject God's goals for our lives. The way in which we turn away from him and and almost make secret plans as if God can't truly see them, even believing, sometimes telling God that he doesn't understand. You can't know what it feels like to be me. You can't possibly have wisdom. You can't possibly care. God describes this in no uncertain terms as rebellion against God. In verse 16, he says, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? 
can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? Just like it would be foolish if it were possible for a piece of clay to turn up to a potter, maybe you, and to say, what do you know about what you're doing? In the same way, how insane it is for us to question God in like manner. To be like a pot who says to the potter, you, God, know nothing. You don't know what you're doing. You are not, in fact, wise. Here's how Isaiah 5, verse 21, earlier in this book, brings the same critique to God's people. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Or as Romans 1.22 puts it bluntly, of people who have turned away from God, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Dear friends, it's a sobering word, but we need to hear it. In what ways have you been rejecting or resisting the wisdom of God and instead leaning upon your own wisdom? Where have you been turning away from his word and his ways and insisting that your plan is the right one? Where have you been doubting that God remains in control and where you instead have insisted yourself on taking over and being in control? In what ways have we become wise in our own eyes, which in fact makes us fools? And of course, again, there's tons of sympathy, I believe, that the Word of God gives to us as we struggle with this. We're scared. We're nervous. We're insecure, especially when life feels like it's spiraling out of control. So we come to this last point here, thirdly, the praise of the wisdom of God. So you're in that place, maybe leaning on your own wisdom. Consider how much this happens in seasons of disappointment, of fear, when we're in times of confusion or maybe pain and and suffering, maybe that's what brought you here today, a circumstance like that. It's hard to trust God. It's hard to surrender to God's wisdom, to trust in him. As I said earlier, God's wisdom means he chooses the best, but of course his definition of best is often different from ours. So we cry out, well, why won't you tell me? Why won't you tell me what's going on? Why won't you show what you're up to, what you're doing? That would at least help. And it's almost as if God says, look, because even if I told you, you probably wouldn't understand it. And frankly, you probably would misunderstand and get even more mad. The finite mind that you have and the twisted souls that we all have. Because there's a complexity, isn't there, to God's plans and purposes, this amazing, infinite God full of love and wisdom and power and strength that he is. We demand to understand, and yet we never could, even if we tried. Pastor and author John Piper famously once said, 
God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. And yet we demand to know, presuming that we could understand. And yet God, in his wisdom, does not always reveal to us all that he's doing in his wisdom for our good. But we can't see and we don't always understand. And so what we're left with is really needing to trust in God's character. And not walking according to what our eyes can see or what our minds can conceive, but rather leaning hard on God's character and indeed his track record. To be able to praise and seek God in the words of Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, God is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. It's an invitation to trust in God's track record of faithfulness. Even beyond human eyes and human analysis. To trust in the track record of God's wisdom itself. Again, this very same wisdom that conceived his perfect plan of salvation for you. It was his wisdom which led the Heavenly Father to give up His very own Son, to be sacrificed on your behalf, in your place, that He might die for our sins, dying the death that we deserved for all our selfishness and sin. The love of God revealed in the wisdom of God, can you, because of the cross and resurrection, begin to trust and the wisdom of God for you. It takes a lot of deep maturing of the soul, of course, to grow in this direction. It's not easy. One of the people's stories, one of the people whom I most admire, who's walked down this path as a woman by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you may know the name. She was a woman who years ago suffered a tragic diving accident as a teenager and became a quadriplegic and just uh, a week or two ago uh, celebrated or remembered the 50th anniversary of that tragic accident. Across those 50 years, Johnny went through all the ups and downs that you would expect from someone that would suffer so tragically. The bewilderment and the confusion that goes along with that as every person would struggle and suffer from. But those 50 years are also full of an incredible ministry of faithfulness, of searching, of walking alongside people, of authoring a number of different books, some of the best that I know on the topic of suffering and persevering in the midst of pain as well as the questions that we all struggle with about confusion with the wisdom of God. What is God doing in my life? Could a good God really do this to me or allow these things to happen to me? In her recent reflections, Johnny wrote words like these, which are just so humbling given her life circumstances. 
She said God hated the torture, injustice, and treason that led to the crucifixion, yet he permitted it so that the world's worst murder could become the world's only salvation. In the same way, God hates spinal cord injury, yet he permitted it for the sake of Christ in you as well as in others, speaking to herself. Like Joseph, when he told his brothers, God intended my suffering for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, Genesis 50, verse 20. Ten words have set the course for my life. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Johnny's words, of course, are grounded in God's word. But the integrity and I would say even moral authority with which she can say such things are things that I can't say not having gone through the struggles and suffering that she has. Listen, though, to her. Because you will be hard-pressed to find a statement that reflects a deeper trust in the wisdom of God than this one. Right? As she says, ten words have set the course for my life. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. In one extended reflection that she was writing about, after these 50 years reflecting upon the lessons that she's learned, Johnny wrote this, and this is extended, but I think it's worth reading. She said, last week my husband Ken and I were at our Johnny and Friends family retreat in Alabama. We were lunching in the big noisy dining hall when a college-aged volunteer approached me holding a kid with Down syndrome on her hip. She gestured at the crowd, of course, filled with many disabled individuals, that was the nature of her ministry, and asked, Miss Johnny, do you ever think how none of this would be happening were it not for your diving accident? I flashed a smile and said, it's why I thank God every day for my wheelchair. After she left, I stared for a moment at the dining hall scene. I suddenly had a 35,000-foot view of the moment. She's right, how did I get here? That has everything to do with God and his grace, Johnny writes. Not just grace over the long haul, but grace in the tiny moments, like breathing in and out, like stepping stones leading you from one experience to the next. The beauty of such grace is that it eclipses the suffering until one July morning you look back and see five decades of God working in a mighty way. Grace softens the edges of past pains, helping to highlight the eternal. What you are left with is peace that's profound, joy that's unshakable, faith that's ironclad. It's the hard but beautiful stuff of what God makes 50 years of your life. Like, when did that happen? I cannot say, but I sure love Jesus for it. You cannot talk like that without a radical, humbled trust in the wisdom of God that begins with seeing his wisdom revealed in the cross of Christ. Whatever it is that you struggle with, isn't this the big question for us today? Do you trust that even in that, that God is working together, working all things together for your good, according to his sovereign 
wisdom. Don't you long for even just a little bit of what Johnny had? A peace that's profound, a joy that's unshakable, a faith that's ironclad, even in the face of the most dizzying of hard circumstances, the most confounding of purposes that God might have for you. But you're learning to trust in his wisdom, and so you're learning to praise him for his wisdom. After all, this is the point of Romans chapter 11. It's a word of praise, doxology. One of the most profound words in the whole passage is found in verse 33. Oh, just that one word. According to one ancient Greek dictionary, that word oh translated there is used in exclamation and that of admiration. So Paul finishes in verse 36 saying to him, to God be the glory forever. Amen. Oh, that God would give us grace not just to accept or even surrender to his wisdom, but that we would learn to admire him for his wisdom and his purposes for our lives. You hear that in Johnny's words, don't you? Admiration, praise to God. Oh, that we would grow as a people that learns to embrace the wisdom of God and that we would give him praise for his wisdom even when it hurts, even when it's confusing. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. So we look to you, Jesus, asking that you would give us grace to believe these things about you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing this song of praise. <laughs>